Chapter 2, The Ignorant, the Arrogant, and the Unkind, Comprehending Violence and Armed Encounters. I twisted the knife until I heard his heartstrings sing. James Bowie We Take It All, Incident 5005, Time of Occurrence, Night, Duration, One Minute, Perspective, first-person defender. George was working as a locksmith, the latest in a series of odd jobs he had picked up during the lonely years since his wife had left with their young son for Texas. It was the night of January 21st, 1985, during a blizzard that hit the mid-Atlantic region. George had just received a call from a woman who needed the lock to her apartment changed that night. George was always gung-ho about whatever job he lands, borrowed a friend's car, and headed down to northeast Baltimore to the vicinity of Morgan State University, a black community college, which is in a residential neighborhood that features a drastically fluctuating crime space from day to night. Strong arm robberies and holdups are the mainstay after dark in the Northeast. As George pulled over next to a snowbank and left his car, he realized three things. It was the coldest night of the year. It was kind of late, nine o'clock, to be alone in this area, and he was lost. He approached two young men and asked for directions, and they offered to lead him to the apartment. George looked at the two, who resembled Rocky and Bullwinkle, one large and dark and the other small and light-skinned, and followed as they headed up a side street. The two stopped in the middle of the street and turned on George. Rocky drew a thirty-two caliber revolver and pressed it into George's gut, while Bullwinkle drew a large buck folder and headed at the ready as he quickly cleared George's front pockets with his left hand. The knife didn't concern George. He was focused on the brass casings of the shells that he could see shining under the streetlight as he looked down on the cylinder of the revolver that was pressed into his belly. He was ordered to hand over his wallet. As he complied, he asked, Can I please keep the picture, my boy? Rocky said, No, we take it all. Bullwinkle added, Just shoot the white motherfucker. Rocky asked, Do you have anything else? George answered, Yeah, my lockpicks are on my belt. Rocky said, Turn around and put your hands on your head. As George turned and was relieved of his lockpicks, Bullwinkle repeated, Just shoot the white motherfucker. Rocky then ordered, Get down on your knees. At this point, George thought he was going to be executed, but Rocky changed his mind. Get up and run for that traffic light and don't look back. George took off. When he got about halfway to the light, he still couldn't shake the thought that he would be shot in the back, so he ducked between two parked vehicles and headed for a nearby drugstore to call the police. After making the call, he said a prayer of thanks to God for sparing his life and prayed for the souls of the robbers. When the police arrived, they seated George in the back of the cruiser and interrogated him as if I were the criminal. They doubted my entire story and wanted to know what I was doing in this area. It had been a low-volume 
retail drug market, servicing the outlying white community since the 1970s. George was eventually given a report number and released. Just reading, George, just narrating George's story gets my vigilante blood up. Where's Bano when you need him? It's my habit to try and comfort crime victims after an interview by putting their experience in context. I informed George that he was one of the only two people in my studies who had faced a gun and a blade at the same time, and that the other guy had been shot and stabbed. George's ordeal was not a fight, and thus, in the minds of the egotistical arrested development adolescents who make up the bulk of the American martial arts teaching fraternity, does not qualify as violence or as a situation worthy of self-defense study. The martial arts master's obsession with the potential glory to be gained in ritualized symmetrical challenges that will promote the primacy of their martial philosophy precludes the consideration of most violence in the context of their art or system. This is the reason I wrote this book, because most of the martial arts magazines to which I submitted knife articles cannot fathom the value of studying marginal situations that do not lead themselves to cheap fight choreography. But George was violated. Consider any aspect of violence, defensive firearm use, blade fighting, blunt force attacks, group aggression, demands a broad view of aggression, violence, and the potential for violence results from complex human interactions and is not easily understood. Hence, the religious-like practice of rigid Asian martial arts philosophy among squeamish, decadent Westerners. Such formalized combat models offer convenient, easily understood masks to hang over the messy reality of human aggression. The adoption of karate as a forum for preparing Americans to deal with personal violence reflects the need for humans to seek the comfort of delusion as much as it does our appreciation of physical artistry and the hysteria of modern fads. Months ago, an associate of mine who is a respected traditional karate instructor and a mathematical wizard was sporting some ugly scabs on his knuckles. When I asked him about it, he replied, I had the kids outside punching trees and dumpsters to toughen their hands. It's bleeding now, but when it grows back, it will heal stronger. This is a perfect example of delusional thought. A man with a firm grounding in Western science, who is acting as a physical educator and who, as a sports fan, has seen hundreds of examples of superb physical specimens losing their athletic prowess to simple repetitive use injuries, actually believes that the scar tissue is stronger than undamaged tissue. When a highly intelligent man who has access to the massive pool of sports medicine knowledge developed by his contemporaries chooses to perpetuate, indeed inflict, rustic Asian mysticism as fact, he has chosen to seek the mirage, not the oasis. Well, friends, I've been looking for a way out of this desert since I took my first senseless beating. Origins of the Violence Project In 1996, a friend who had been doing calculus in school while I was warring with rival knuckle-draggers asked me to recommend a practical self-defense program. I couldn't. This led to hundreds of interviews with martial arts teachers, brawlers, criminals, and victims in an attempt to relate th 
self-defense theory to the offensive reality of concrete burns, boot parties, brick splinters, gravel snacks, and wood shampoos. I was not all at all surprised to find a yawning abyss of ignorance separating self-defense training and raw, ordinary violence in the modern United States. As the survey topped the 1,000 mark, I became aware that the most common type of armed encounter was the, with a knife or knife-like weapon, not the firearm, as the experts would have us believe. Firearm violence is the only variety of American mayhem that is not underreported. This fact, combined with my knowledge that self-defense theory regarding blade fighting is seldom presented by folks who have ever been in a real edged weapon encounter, was the inspiration for this book. Relating Experience to Self-Defense Study Since 1974, I have practiced various Western and Asian fighting arts for the purpose of self-defense. Some of these arts were taught as sports, some as meditations on the warrior tradition, and some as a means of practical combat. Regardless of their philosophical orientation, each teacher provided tools that enhanced my survivability in subsequent altercations. And during beatings and surviving brawls and armed encounters had provided a context for my training. Having been taken to the pavement by a large athlete, I did not need for my wrestling coach to explain the value of the splay or sprawl. Having been sucker punched, I did not require my boxing trainer to point out the value of rolling with a punch. When my Wing Chun Sifu first introduced me to the art of trapping, there was no need for him to sell the point. Once you have fought in a doorway, trapping makes perfect sense. Likewise, having defended with a razor against a man wearing a leather jacket, I understood my Kali instructor's emphasis on striking the hand. Having a reference point for absorbing combat instruction is a definite advantage. The purpose of this study is to provide that advantage to those who lack real fighting experience. However, this is not just for novices. Violence is so varied that even a veteran of many altercations may lack experience in a particular area, and nobody has enough experience in real knife fights to claim expert status. Even Raphael, a veteran of perhaps a hundred acts of violence, can only recall a handful of knife encounters.